My name is Kevin Barra, and I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church. And um, Brian asked me um, last week to actually kind of give uh, kind of an explanation of what we're going to be doing this summer. We're doing a series that we've, in, we've entitled Face to Face. We're recovering theophanies, moments when God interacted face to face with humanity, moments when God stepped into history and s- literally spoke, interacted with people. And the, the reason we're doing that partially is that we are going to have multiple pastors moving through and, and sharing the, the pulpit on Sunday mornings through the summer. And part of the reason for that is theophanies are, are segments, moments that can stand alone. And so we'll be rotating from campus to campus. Um, also, this gives opportunity for our primary teaching pastors to get a break. Um, you're on vacation going in and out. So are they. That gives them a chance to kind of have a rest and recovery over the summer. And also a, a third reason, and this is really a conviction that we have at Grace Bible Church. Um, that we would come together to see the word of God and hear the word of God preached and not rest on the personality of a great communicator. And so if you would, um, I'm going to read for us a bit, pray for us one more time, and then we will launch in. So Exodus chapter 19 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at uh, chapter 19 and verse 32. I'm going to read a little bit from 19 to jump one through Seven or so, and then I'm going to jump to verse 16. So, Exodus chapter 19, starting verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders to the people to set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Moses has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there, was, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, so at the top of the mountain, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that... um, that you are a God who meets with people, that comes face to face with humanity. You're not a distant deity trying to have people figure you out, but you come and display yourself to us. And so, Father, as we open up your word and we look at this amazing moment when you interacted with, with Moses, 
and the nation of Israel, I pray that we would be changed. We would learn who you are and see what you would have us do. To near me, pray. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I did one of the most terrifying things um, that I had ever thought I would ever do. Um, we went cliff jumping. And we did it in Boulder, Colorado. And so some friends of I, uh, and I got together and we rented a house somewhere in Boulder, Colorado. That's kind of how college works. You're just like, is anyone subleasing? We'll stay there, right? And so we got to this house and the house was terrible. Um, it had no air conditioning and it was right on the side of a main street. And so the first night, you had to keep every window open because it was blistering hot. And, uh, and the first night, about two in the morning, I hear an ambulance whiz by. Woo, 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 woo. Whoa. I mean, it literally felt like it was in the room. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was crazy. And I, so I lay back down. Okay, that just passed. And then not two minutes later, a fire truck went by. Woo, woo, honk, like all the way through. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I go over to my buddy and I hit him and I'm like, hey, does that happen every night? He'd been there about a month. And I'm like, he goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, you'll get used to it. And I'm like, where did I land, right? And the next morning we get up and he goes, hey man, we're gonna go cliff jumping. He says, hop in, we're gonna hop into your car and you're gonna drive all of us. I'm like, all right. And so we get into my car and we start heading up the side of this mountain, right? And, it's, and we're going up switchbacks. It's taking forever. I'm going, where, where are we landing? And finally we, get, we crest the top. We come over to an area and we get to a dam. We jump out of the car and we all stand at the edge of this cliff. And I don't know if you've ever been to that, an area like that in Colorado, but the mountains are majestic and beautiful. I mean, it's, it's immaculate. I mean, it really just takes your breath away. And as we're standing on that edge, we're looking down at the water, you know, way below, right? And my buddy goes to me, you go first. And I'm like, mm-mm. And, and there's that moment where, where guys are kind of trying to bow up to each other like, yeah, I'm not ready. I, just, I, need, to, I need to stretch out first um, before we uh, do this adventure, right? So we're all kind of standing around like five of us going, okay, who's going to go first and, and trying to, you know, get enough energy to do this. And one of the guys goes, forget it, I'm going. And he pushes us out of the way and he jumps and does a gainer, which means you jump up and dive in backwards. And we're like, oh my gosh. And we all run to the edge of the cliff as he does that. And we watch him descend and it takes forever because it's so far down and he goes under the water. And we stand there looking like, okay, when's he gonna come up? You know, and because he goes so deep. And as he's, as he's down there, a buddy of mine goes, hey, yeah, that's a lot deeper than it was like last week when we came here, but we didn't want to tell you because we wanted you to go first. And I'm like, thanks a lot, right? And finally he comes up and then he, he comes out of the water and he looks at us and we look down, we're like, okay, okay, this is a little bit safe, kind of, right? But also we had this new energy to go, all right, if he jumped in, I can jump in too. And the reason I start there is because we find ourselves at a moment in the book of Exodus, where there is something majestic, beautiful, but terrifying to jump into. We are looking at one of the most amazing moments of the nation of Israel, and truly one of the most amazing moments in the life of Moses, where he's going to stand face to face with God, and the people are going to surround below the mountain and watch God descend and interact. And that is a moment that is both terrifying and terrific. It is both majestic and menacing to see the glory of God descend. So this morning, what I want to look at is, is this moment when Moses interacts with God on Mount Sinai. And really, Mount Sinai, this event uh, 
basically covers the last half of your Bible, chapters 19 through 39, all cover this moment when God interacts with Moses and the nation of Israel on this mountain. And what's amazing is that we see something about God and we see something about us. And we also see something that every one of us needs. We see the holiness of God, the hardness of the human heart, and our need for a hero. The first thing we see is the holiness of God. And what's amazing is that the nation has come. They've traveled to this place. God had saved them. And they came um, basically a three-month journey to this place in Mount Sinai. It's, it's the area between Egypt and Israel. It's that peninsula that comes down um, off the Mediterranean Sea. And it's there. And we don't know the exact place where the mountain is. And I think God did that purposefully. Because God knew that if we f- ever could pinpoint exactly where this mountain is, everyone would stand and worship that mountain. So it's a loss to us. We don't know exactly where this took place, but we do know the region. And it's at that place that God demonstrates that he is holy. He is unlike anything we have ever encountered. And R.C. Sproul actually has a helpful definition for us. And he writes this of holiness. He says, the primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut or to separate. Perhaps even more accurate would be the phrase, a cut above something. We, when we find a garment or other piece of merchandise that is outstanding, that has superior excellence, we use this expression that is a cut, that is a cut above the rest. In Exodus fifteen eleven, it says this of God. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic and holy, awesome in praise? You see, what we need to understand is that when God says that he is holy, this isn't just one attribute in a, min, in, a, in a list of characteristics. Like this is the controlling characteristic of God. He is holy. Because oftentimes we can say, okay, God is just, he is merciful, he's holy, and it could be a list among many. But that's actually not how we should see God. He is holy in his justice. He is holy in his mercy. Um, a way would be to describe, describe it like this. You wouldn't, to describe me, you wouldn't say Kevin has brown hair. Um, you would need a controlling characteristic to define everything about me. So you'd say, Kevin is awesome. And then you'd say, Kevin has awesome hair. You know? And then you'd say, Kevin has awesome style. You, know, you would use that controlling uh, example, that controlling idea to describe everything else. And in this moment, we see that God is holy. He is unlike anything you've encountered. He is powerful, he is personal, and he is pure. We see, first of all, that he's powerful in verse 4. He tells them, when they get to the base of the mountain, verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The first thing that he wants them to see is that he is powerful. He is holy in his power. And he tells them, I want you to remember how I saved you out of Egypt. And if you were with us last week, we saw Moses. He was not all that excited about going to Egypt. God had to convince him to get him there. And when he gets there, he does 10 plagues to release the grip of Pharaoh on these people. And then as soon as he releases them from that grip, he brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. 
And as they're standing there, they're terrified. They see the army of, it, of, of Pharaoh coming at them. They see the sea beside them, which is about a mile across. They're literally between a rock and a hard place, freaking out, scared. And Moses, by the power of God, parts the sea. And they walk through and the Egyptians are destroyed. And then you see him provide for them. I mean, they walk across and the first issue that comes is they get thirsty. They're in this wilderness. And they go, God, did you leave us out here to die? What's going on? And Moses goes, calm down, calm down. He takes his staff, beats a rock, and water flows. And they drink. And then they continue along. They're like, we're hungry, God. Is someone going to give us food? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? And they're, they're totally lost perspective. Did you not see everything that just happened? They're freaking out. And they see God provide for them through his power, manna. And most of us, when we think of manna, we're just like, oh, that crusty wafer, wafer nasty thing, you know? But if you actually read the text, it was, it was, like, it was like honey and bread that landed there. I mean, it was like a, like a croissant. I mean, it was awesome, right? And they're eating this and he's providing them with food. And they get to the first war. And in that moment, uh, they come against Amalek. And there's this beautiful moment when, when it says that Moses raised his hands in worship. And if ever his arms would, would fall, the Israelites would start losing the battle. And so two men got beside him and they raise his arms and keep him up. And Israel is victorious. And you see that God tells them, Look, I had the power to bring you out of this land and into this place next to this mountain. I want you to remember what I did in your life, how I brought you here. I want you to see the power of God. But I also want you to know that I'm a personal God. He says specifically, I led you out like an eagle caring for its young on the wings of an eagle. I don't know if you know much about eagles, but from what I understand, the way that they train a baby eagle to fly is they get into the top of, of a cliff and the mama brings that baby bird up there and says, we're doing this, people. Chunks them off and that bird starts plummeting to its demise, right? And then the bird jumps off, swoops down and grabs it. I mean, this is like fly or die. You know, like this is the plan of how to teach this bird how to, get, how to fly. And that is exactly what God did with this nation. He led them into a little bit of trial, but he was there to guide them to the next place. They, they saw that they couldn't get out of the nation of Egypt, but he showed them how he was gonna free them. He, they, they came to the, the place where they couldn't provide for themselves. They didn't have water and he provided for them there. Each moment, God is training them like a good dad, training a kid how to get off training wheels. And we've all had that moment learning how to ride a bike. You've got the four wheels, and the four wheels are awesome. But there comes a moment where a good dad is going to go, we're going to get rid of those. And you're like, but they help. And I can go fast. I've got four wheels. A good dad goes, no, we've got to go in a new direction. So he takes off the wheels. And what does he do? He grabs the seat. And he runs along with you. You know, and you pedal. I'm going to freak out. And every now and then he'll let go. Can you do this, buddy? And he's there like a good dad, protecting, providing. He is a powerful God. And he's personal. He's there to walk beside them. And beyond that, he has a plan for them that is completely personal. In verse five of chapter nine, he says this. Now, therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There are, there, these are the words that you shall speak to the people. And he gives them this personal invitation to say, look, guys, all I want for you to do is obey my voice. This is a conditional arrangement. If you listen to me and obey me, here's what's gonna happen. You are gonna be my people that will represent me to the world. I will bless you. You will be abundant in everything that you have. I'm gonna give you everything that you need. And this is a personal invite into a relationship with God. I mean, God is so good in this moment. But we also see that he's pure. He tells Moses to go down to the people in verse 10. He says, the Lord said, Lord God said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. And tomorrow, let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on the mountain of Sinai in the sight of the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether men, beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up the mountain. And so he says, I want you to realize people that I'm holy. I'm more powerful than anything you've ever encountered. I am personal. I want to have a relationship with you, but I'm pure. I am unlike anything you've ever encountered. And when you come into my presence, you need to purify yourself because you are stained with sin, you are dirty. And so they wash their clothes, they get all ready, they get all ready to get there. Three days it takes of cleansing. And at one level, some of you might go, okay, now why is God doing that? I mean, it seems like a jerk move. Like you brought us out here and now you're telling us dirty? Hey, you led us for three months, okay? Like if I haven't taken a bath, it's because you haven't provided enough water, you know? Like in one level you could say, okay, God, are, are you just being a jerk on this? But everyone that is in authority has the ability to determine how they're approached. And so I remember the first time I got pulled over by a cop, I said the first time, I was 16 years old. And, uh, and so the, I hear the sirens behind me, I was speeding, I pull over and, and I'm a little bit nervous, you know, I'm freaking out, kind of sweating, heart's racing, and I reach in, I go, I need my license, registration, I know that, so I grab the registration, I grab my license, I open the door, and I get out of the car, and I start walking back to the cop, and immediately he grabs his gun, he looks at me, and he goes, son, you can give her, get back in that car, and sit down, and I'm like, I was just bringing you the, I don't, I don't know, he goes, son, get in the car right now, I will come to you, right, I'm like, okay, what is going on, you know, like, why is he freaking out like that? But he's an authority and he determines how he gets approached. I mean, TSA and the airlines does the same thing, right? How do you approach them? You take off your shoes, you take off your belt, you take off your clothes, like you get everything off, you get your bag open, you stand spread eagle, arms up, you turn when I tell you to turn. Like they tell you when you come to this place, I'm an authority, this is how you come. The same would be true in approaching the president, right? If you, you see a Barack Obama walking down the road and he's got, you know, the people around him, guys with headsets and muscles, you know, like walking through and you're like, hey, Barack, what's going on? You run up to him. You will get tackled. You will get handcuffed. You will be put below a bright light. A lot of questions will be fueled at you. Why? Because when you see the higher the level of authority, the more rules there are 
and how you approach that. And what God is saying is, look, I am holy. I am pure. I am unlike anyone you have ever come in contact with. And every illustration breaks down at some point, and all those illustrations break down at this point. Because the reason for those rules is because they're trying to protect themselves. But the reason God gives us those guidelines is because he's trying to protect us. Moses, later on in Exodus 33, will say, God, show me your glory. And God's like, (laughs) oh gosh. Okay, you stand in the cleft of the rock, I will put you behind my hand, and you will see my back. Because if we were ever to gaze at the glory of God, we wouldn't be able to stand. He tells the people, I'm powerful, I saved you. I'm personal, I want a relationship with you. But I'm pure, there's a way you've got to come. And all of those ideas of holiness collide together at a moment when he descends on Mount Sinai. The people are ready. They come to the edge of the mountain and God descends. And the scripture says, there are earthquakes. The mountain is shaking. There's lightning flashing. I mean, it is a terrifying sight to be in the presence of a holy, perfect God. And the people are freaking out. And at this moment, God gives them the law. And in chapters 19 through 31, God lays out a law in basically three sections. There's the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. There's social laws. This is how you interact with one another. And there's ceremonial laws. This is the way you come into my presence. This is the way you worship me. And at this moment, they only get through the first section, the preamble. Because God said to Moses, I'm going to speak in front of you all of this. And in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21... God speaks the Ten Commandments to the people and to God. And they are freaking out. In verse 18, we see the response. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain's smoke, they were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off and saw and said to Moses, you speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak lest we die. You see, I think it's hard to imagine the the severity of this moment, like how big this is. And I was trying to think about ideas of holiness, of grandeur. What what would that look like? And I was watching um, an an astronaut talk about his first spacewalk in outer space. It was on the BBC network. And it, it talked about how he took a step for the first time out of the ship and grabbed onto a satellite that he was going to be working on. And in that moment, he, his mind just left him. And he, it says he got vertigo. He just kind of lost orientation. And he says in this moment, he says, I, I saw the beauty of the earth below me in its splendor. And I saw the beauty of the bright sun in front of me. And I saw the brightness and, and the blackness around me. And I realized uh, he couldn't even stand because he couldn't even get his bearings, because he was caught in a moment of glory. And that's where we see with these people. They see the mountain shaking, the voice of God, his power, his personal relationship. This is what I want you to do in the Ten Commandments, and that he is pure, that is holy, that is like nothing I've interacted with. And this is the people are terrified. And they said to Moses, uh, you talk to him, we're out. <laughs> like, we'll do what he says, but, but you talk to him first. 
And then Moses says an interesting thing to them. He says, don't be afraid, but be a little afraid. Verse 20, he says, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. And the people stood afar off while Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. What he's saying to them is, hey, don't be afraid, but be a little bit afraid. And what, what does he mean by that? He says, well, there's a fear that causes us to run away. And there's a fear that causes us to obey. He says, I want you to fear God and run from sin. Not because God is evil. He's actually there to protect you. He's actually there to help you. He is good. But we want you to have a healthy fear of the God of the universe. I love the, the book series, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And in the book, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis actually captures this glory in, in a good image. When he talks about Aslan, the lion. And I love the interaction that um, the kids have with, uh, with Mr. Beaver at one point. They come there, they don't really know who Aslan is yet, and they find themselves in this weird world talking to a beaver. And the beaver says to him, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When we come to the presence of God, what we've got to see is, look, he is glorious. He is holy. He is like nothing we have ever encountered. And he is good. But when you come to him, you come to him on his terms. And the people, they, they say, look, you go for us. And actually, Moses, over the next several chapters, he goes up, gets more rules, brings them down to the people. Goes up, gets more laws, and brings them back to the people. And what's amazing is each time Moses descends, they say in a great way, everything you said we will do. Hey, we want to be your people. We want to be on your team. We want to do what, you, where you're, we want to do what you're calling us to do. We want to be on, on, the perp, on board with your purposes. That's what we want. Until we get to chapter 24. And in Exodus chapter 24, Moses actually goes up for an extended visit with God. And as he gets to the top of, of the mountain. In Exodus 24, it says that God once again was a burning light on the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. In chapter 24, it says that Moses stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. You see, these people are in one of the most spectacular moments that we would ever see. None of us have seen anything like this. It's even hard to put it into words. And as that's going on up there, God makes them wait. And what happens when we wait? I think what often happens is the hardness of our heart is revealed. And we see at this moment that the people's heart is actually extremely hard because God is making them wait. In 30, chapter 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that, that, Moses, that Moses was delayed to come down to the, from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, what has happened to him. 
So Aaron said, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears and of your wives, your children, your sons and daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of, of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it into a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made proclamation, tomorrow there'll be a feast. And they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings. I mean, at one level, you would say like, that just seems ridiculous. But if you've, if you've watched the nation of Israel, you'll see that they are an impatient people. See, when God first came to Israel, when they were in slavery under Egypt, he said, look, I'm going to free you. I'm going to lead you out of this place. And, and they, their response is, okay, when are you going to do this? And then Pharaoh hears and he makes their life harder. He says, well, I'm not going to give you a straw. And they're like, what? Moses, you're going to kill us. And then he finally frees them out of the, that area. And then he brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. And they say at that moment, they're coming. We're going to die in the water. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? We're all going to pe- perish here. And God says, oh, just calm down. And he opens up a way. And they get out of there and, and they, they don't have water. And they freak out about the water. They don't have food. They freak out about the food. They're about to walk into a war. They freak out about the war. And every time God's going, have you not seen my faithfulness over and over and over again? I didn't rescue you from them to kill you at this point. I'm for you. But let's just be honest. We all get tired of waiting. I grew up in Houston, which meant you wait in traffic. I mean, it was common that you would go 15 miles and it would take an hour at least to get through that, right? I have a daughter who's four years old, extremely impatient, right? A typical conversation will go like this. Daddy, can I have some milk? 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 Milk? Daddy, Daddy, can I have some milk? Can I have some milk? And the only way she'll stop is not if I say, I can't say, yeah, babe, I'll get it in a second. That doesn't work. The only way for her to get through her head that I'm going to help her is this. Peyton, I will get you milk now, right? That's the only way she'll stop saying, where's my milk? Where's my milk? And and, and all of us, we find ourselves to be completely impatient with God. And when God says, wait, most of us go, God, it just doesn't seem to make sense. What do you mean, wait? Wait? Yeah, I want you to wait on me. It's not that big of a deal. I led you all the way here. I want you to be patient. And when we see that God is holy, and that and in those moments, he makes us wait. Honestly, we all get frustrated. And so God tells you, I want you to date this type of person. I want you to wait for them. All right, what type of person do you want me to date, God? Well, I want them to love me. I want them to serve me. I want them to be passionate about me. Well, that seems tough. Um, can't we just like streamline this thing? I said, no, I want you to wait. I need a job. Okay, God, I, I need a job. I don't have a job. I need to apply for a job. And, and you're, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to write my resume out and do that. And, and you're not getting a job. And you're like, well, maybe I could just fudge some of these numbers. And like, yeah, I know that program or I can learn it quickly. And we just, we just kind of fudge on it. We say, God, I need more money. Like I, things aren't going well. And so you look at your tax form, April's rolling around. And you're just like, I'm just going to fudge on these numbers a little bit. Or like, man, at work, people just run numbers this way. Like, this is the way you, you, you promise more than you can deliver, and then you beg for forgiveness when you can't deliver it. I mean, this is how work does. God, understand, this is how things play out. Or God, my marriage is, is hard. 
You know? I know you want me to love and honor this person, but they're not getting it together, right? I mean, you see it. I see it. We all see it. You want me to be patient, God? You want me to wait? And the truth is, when we get tired of waiting because we don't trust God, we take matters into our own hands. And that's what this nation did. And they carved for themselves an image. And most scholars think that this moment when they're carving um, this calf isn't, isn't them trying to make a new God or make a new way of worshiping. What they're doing is they're saying, look, I'm looking around and seeing what else is working for them. And they make a picture of what's common in their day and age, a picture of a bull, a calf, something that's powerful. And they say, hey, it seems to be working for them. Maybe it'll work for us. And they make this image and they begin worshiping this image. And they reinterpret the God who sent them out. It was this bull. And they reinvent a way to worship. And it says that Moses or Aaron said, there'll be a feast tomorrow. And they get together for the feast to sacrifice to this false God, this false idol. And it says they got drunk and they committed sexual immorality. I mean, how do you go from magnificent presence of God to worshiping an idol in a broken way? And the truth is, we, 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 it's easy to blame them, but we do the same thing. And our idols may not be like this specific calf that we go bow down to and say, you're my God calf. We may not do that, but we've got much more sophisticated ways of doing it. And Tim Keller has a great book called Counterfeit Gods. He says it this way. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says to the elders of Israel, these men have set up idols in their heart. What God was saying is that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that they give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. And so we see the idol of love. I have a four-year-old daughter, which means I read princess books every night. And you read through it. And what's the story of Snow White, Sleeping Beauty? What's the point? You are saved by the love of a prince. And guys, we have it too. Princess and the Frog, Beauty and the Beast, what's the point? You are ugly until this girl tells you you're worth something. Maybe it's not those, but maybe for you, success. Madonna says it this way. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. See, when we look at the idols of our heart, we say, man, I, God isn't prized above all. I'm going to go get that. And God, will you just bless that? I'll serve you with this. I'll serve you with this idol. But here's the truth. God's trying to save us. 
Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the truth is God is trying to save us. And so God intervenes. And so Moses goes down the mountain and he goes and confronts Aaron. And I love Aaron's response because he responds like all of us. Verse 21 of chapter chapter 32. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set in evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf, right? I mean, he completely like denies responsibility, right? He like completely deflates it. Like, okay, look, look, you know that they're crazy. And besides, I'm just a victim here. I just gathered these things together. I threw it in the fire and out popped this, you know, like this is not my fault, right? It's funny. A friend of mine told a story about um, his sister. Um, and, and there was a moment like the mom found like all of this hair, all these hair clippings in a, in a sink. And the mom brought these long hair clippings. There was a daughter and two sons and brought it up to each of them. Now who did this? And the daughter, the sister's sitting there with like jagged hair, like a big mess. And they're all looking at her like, did you do this? And she's like, uh-uh. Baby, this is your curly hair right here. Like, this is you. This is you. But she's standing there denying it. I mean, he's denying it. He's trying to deflect responsibility. Adam did the same in the garden. When Adam was approached, he said, look, the woman you gave me gave me fruit and I ate it. I'm a victim here. So I'll go sit back with the monkeys. You guys go figure it out, right? Like he just deflate, removes responsibility. Hey, God, this is on you. And Aaron says, look, I'm, I'm not responsible for this. And the tragedy is they, they see the holiness of God and they see the purposes he's calling them to. And they say, you know what? That's hard. God, can't you just bless this way? And God says, no. There's only one way to approach me. And Moses actually does an amazing thing. In verse 30, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out from the book, but now go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. I mean, Moses has come a long way. When we saw him in chapter three, he was, he was trying to look for an escape. Hey, choose someone else, please God. And at this moment, he stands in front of God and pleads for the people. You know what we need? We need a hero to bridge the gap for us. And he says, he takes responsibility. He says, kill me and save them. And God says to him, look, you can't cover the sins of the people. We need someone else. We need a new hero to arise. One of the most most impressive awards we give to our soldiers is called the Medal of Honor. And we award it to the soldier who sacrifices himself for the sake of others. Jesus said it this way, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. See, Moses, when he was meeting with God, he got the the tabernacle. 
the picture of what it meant to make restitution with God, how to make atonement with God. In Hebrews, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And they set up a system. Each, each year, someone would go in. They would enter into the Holy of Holies. They would sacrifice an animal. They would stand before God. And that God would look at the blood and forgive the sins of the people. But in Hebrews 9, it shows us that that never really worked. That was a symbol that would be fulfilled in Christ. And in Luke, Jesus is on the cross. And it says that the veil of the temple tore in two and he died and three days later he arose from the dead and he came to Mary and he said don't touch me I haven't yet gone to the father and he goes and offers himself in the holy of holies for our sake for our sin to bring us into relationship with God he is the one that offers himself for atonement for God and we need a hero and every great story you've ever heard is a story of a hero that would lay down their life for the purpose of love. So I have a four-year-old daughter. We watch princess movies all the time. And I love the movie Frozen. I do. I'm, I'm admitting that. Sorry, gentlemen. I'm one of them. And I love the storyline because it starts out with, with a girl who has these powers, these great gifts that she can't control. And she's at a loss for them. She can't... She can't fix them. And so she thinks the only way to get freedom is to run away. And so she runs to the top of a mountain and she doesn't realize that in the process, she spread collateral damage to everyone else around them. Everything's covered in snow in Arendelle. There's a little song part. Arendelle's in deep, 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 deep snow, right? (laughs) And her little sister runs up to her and says, you've got to come back. You've, we're we're going to, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you through this. And she says, get away. I just need to be alone. I, I'm, I, I'm not going to interact with you. And she ends up coming back down. She's captured. And she comes to, the, um, to a, a t- tragic moment where a guy is running with a sword about to kill her. And her little sister sees it and runs across the ice lake. Right? It's epic. And she reaches up her hand, she blocks the sword, and sends that fool on his butt. And suddenly the sister realizes, the way to control all the things I can't is through perfect love and a loving sacrifice. And she hugs her sister and learns to control everything she can't through the love of the one that would sacrifice himself for her. And that is who we have in Christ. The one who paid the penalty we owe, who stood for us so that we could be in relationship with a holy God. So I want to leave you with three applications. What's your picture of God? Is God big enough for you to worship? What are the idols of your heart? What things are you holding up as more important than the holy God we serve? And lastly, Have you come to the only hero that can save you from your sins and leave you to freedom? The person of Jesus Christ. I pray that you do. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I thank you for the book of Exodus and your interaction with Moses. And more importantly than that, I thank you that you went from the mountain of Sinai to the mountain of Calvary 
to sacrifice yourself so that we can be in relationship with you. And I know, Lord, your rules and laws are perfect but overwhelming because we can't keep them. But you sent for us the perfect substitute to free us of our sins and bring us into freedom. So Lord, I pray that we would come to the feet of him, not to the idols of our heart. We love you. Let me pray. Amen. Y'all have a great morning.